Thank you, Jeff. Um, we certainly want to continue to uh, pray for Angie as she deals with the, uh, her, the health of her mother. And uh, so let's continue to do that. Uh, as Jeff was talking, um, I was looking over here, this wonderful group of young people here. It's just marvelous to see you guys. But you know, we woke up this morning and, uh, you know, got ready to come to church and didn't have to worry. We don't have to worry about anything, do we? You know, we don't have to worry about anybody busting through the doors or anybody doing anything to us because of our faith. We don't have to worry about that. We're Americans. And we tend to forget, I know I do, until I start reading in a voice of a martyr's magazine. <laughs> we, I just forget that, you know, the rest of the world is not like this. The rest of the world doesn't just gather together and one of the only one of the main things we have to worry about this morning is whether or not we're going to get out on time or you know or something like that i mean you know something kind of ridiculous um jeff and angie are faced with people who like i said are kicked out of families and persecuted terribly just because they want to go to church just because they want to have their faith in the lord jesus christ they they have seen the truth and it's so sad to see that, and it's so sad that, that a lot of times we just tend to forget about that. We all like that. But aren't we thankful that the Lord is powerful enough to defeat all of that? And as believers, we can come together and we can worship a holy God, a God who came and had and, and the, the mystery, the mystery of how he came as God and his man and dwelt among us and the grace and the mercy that he showed us because while we were sinners he came and he lived among us and he died for us and we can come together and we can worship a wonderful holy God like that and that's what these other people want to do that's all they want to do but they are faced with things that we're, we, we can't even imagine we just need to remember that. But the main thing I want us to remember right now is how wonderful our God is. You know, how good he is to every single one of us. So in our worship time this morning, we're going to sing about his wonderful mercy and his grace and how great he really is. So let's all stand and let's really sing out on wonderful grace of Jesus. Yeah. 
Bible said. Amen. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's sing together.
to the choirs, they sing a song about the, the, the mystery, the mystery of what God did in order to save us, because not a one of us were worthy of being saved, and no way possible could we do it on our own, but we want to behold the wondrous mystery of what God did. Listen to the words of the choirs they sing. <coughs>
Let's have a word of prayer, please. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning for the wondrous mystery of your coming to us. Father, we know that you didn't have to. Lord, you could have dealt with our sin in the way that comes natural. And that's for us to be lost. And that's for us all deserving the pits of hell. But God, you had a plan. You sent your son. And not only was he a man that came, but he was God that came. And Lord, how that works, how you put that together is a mystery to us, Lord. It defies all human understanding. It defies the natural law of nature. But you, only you, the God who is able to speak the worlds into existence, Lord, who can set the planets in motion, who can create us from dust, and who can also return us to dust, Father, only a God, a wonderful, marvelous, awesome God can do that. And, oh, God, we are so thankful to you this morning. As we gather together, Lord, we come to worship you as our Savior and our Lord. Father, you saved us from our sins. Now, Lord, you are Lord of our lives. And, Lord, we bow down to you as King, and we follow you as King. And, oh, God, we just thank you that we are able to come together this morning. And without the fear of anyone hauling us off, without the fear of anyone harming us in any way, Lord, we are able to come and worship you and speak well of you in everything that we do through our song and through the message, through a testimony, through prayer. God, we are able to do it, Father, without that. But, no, Lord, we know, as, as Jeff uh, shared with us a few minutes ago, it's not like that everywhere. And, Lord, we pray for those who have a desire to worship you, Lord. They would just, it would be a marvelous thing for them to have the freedom to come together as we do today. Lord, we pray for all those. Lord, ask you to give them strength, give them courage to take the stand and to trust you through it all. But God, we thank you. We praise you this morning for who you are. And Lord, we come together, Lord, to worship you. And Father, as we leave this place today, God, we pray that our hearts of worship together will be satisfying to you. God, it doesn't matter about the music. It doesn't matter about the preacher. It doesn't matter about the fellowship, Lord. It matters about you, and you are the focus of this hour. Lord, thank you for allowing us to share in it. So, Father, we just ask you to be with Thad as he comes and brings your message to us today. And, Lord, as we, as we do, as we leave here, Lord, that you would be satisfied with our hearts of worship this morning. So be with us now. These things we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Jeff, it was great to hear from you and 
we will keep certainly keep Angie and her mother in prayer. And if you're visiting with us today, one of the unique um, pieces of grace is that we get to know our missionaries face to face. And that's a wonderful thing because we're able to interact with them. Uh, we're able to, like this morning, uh, have someone give us a report about what's going on in other parts of the world. And um, so we're just thankful, right, to be able to be a part of that mission. It's also wonderful today to see all these D-Now young people. And, 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 and the leaders look tired for some reason. Well, you ought to be able to get a nap here in the next few moments. But we are certainly, certainly thankful for our youth leaders, uh, for all they do. Um, they're faithful. Uh, they labor uh, very, uh, uh, well, how would I word that? They labor all the time. That would be the best way to put it. And um, they certainly enjoy working with the young people. And we are very blessed here at Grace to have a group of youth leaders um, like we have to minister to these young people. And uh, we know that one of the primary uh, focal points on Wednesday nights um, is the Word of God. And it's being taught, and we certainly are thankful. So, young people, it's great to have you up toward the front row. I might have a rubber band or two in my pocket. So if you fall asleep, I might shoot you. How would that be? All right. Well, I, I wish we were um, this morning going to be talking about something that I feel you would walk out going, man, I was encouraged today, but I'm not quite sure that's the way it's going to be, and I'm just being honest with you. Um, this section of 1 John is difficult for many reasons. One of the reasons is because of the subject itself. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And we will look together this morning only at verse 4. Um, one of the um, books that I have reading through, looking at this issue of 1 John 3, the author breaks up every single verse, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. He just takes them one at a time because there's so much to consider just in a verse. And I know for you sitting in the audience, you may think, well, there needs to be more than just one verse covered in a week. And I'm glad that you have that thought. But the reality is that um, this morning we're only going to cover verse 4, but we will make better progress uh, in the next couple of weeks and hopefully conclude this section uh, in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 in a couple of weeks. Before we read it, I want to give you... Um, part of an article that I read about uh, man's view of sin versus God's view of sin. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blindness. Man calls it a defect. God calls it a disease. Man calls it an error. Boy, you hear that word a lot. God calls it enmity. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. 
Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a mistake. Boy, I hear that word a lot. Oh, they just made a mistake. No. No. There's a difference between a mistake and a sin. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it wickedness. Man calls it senseless. God calls it sin. The title of this series, this three-week series, is that three-letter word and more. It's that three-letter word. You know a lot of three-letter words? Cat, hat, rat, hog. That's a three-letter word. Dog. No, that's a four-letter word, right? (laughs) Dr. Wilbur Chapman used to tell of a preacher who often spoke on the subject of sin. I want you to listen to this very well. He minced no words, but defined sin as that abominable thing that God hates. That sounds correct, does it not? A leader in his congregation came to him on one occasion and urged him to cease using the ugly word. Pastor, he said, we wish you would not speak so plainly about sin. Call it like maybe an error or a mistake. Or even a twist in our nature. But don't call it sin. The pastor replied, I understand what you mean. As he was walking over to his desk, he opened one of the drawers and pulled out a bottle. The bottle had a label on the outside that read, poison. He looked at his leader and said, would you suggest that I change the label so that it would be more pleasing to those that may read it? Why does man have a difficult time in discussing sin? Why does the church? I have seen a difference since I was a boy. I remember when I was a boy, a pastor would stand up and preach and teach on the subject of sin. You remember those days? And would do it without apology. And say man's problem is sin. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. You don't hear that much today. And the reason that you don't is because it's offensive. But if I read my Bible correctly, the gospel is offensive. Because the gospel has bad news, but it's got good news as well. And everyone wants to hear the good news, and I'm all about the good news. But you have to begin with man's condition. And if you look at the book of Romans, that's exactly the way Paul begins. He defines man's condition in chapters 1 through 3. And the conclusion is, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Well, it is this section of Scripture, Dr. Anderson says in 1 John, 
more than any other, which keeps expository preachers from trying to present this little book to their congregations. I read of a very um, famous pastor who, in all the years that he taught behind the pulpit, did not approach 1 John. Because he said it was just too difficult. It is difficult, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at it and try to understand what it is that John is writing about as he comes to this section of Scripture. So let's familiarize ourselves with this section. Beginning in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 3, notice what he says. Now, depending on the translation, it's going to read different in verse 4 and in verse 9 and some maybe even in verse 7. I'll explain that in just a few moments. In my New American Standard Bible, which I use, it says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin, but his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin. Well, you read that and you go, hold on a second. Didn't it tell us in 1 John chapter 1 that we do sin? Is there contradiction here? I don't think so. I think there's an explanation Hopefully, we will all understand. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, there are two primary viewpoints um, in this section of Scripture, okay? And I think it's important for you to understand. There are other things that we will discuss within the framework of these verses, especially as we get to verse 9 and verse 10, even backing up children of the devil and children of God. But there are so many questions that just come from this section of Scripture. Like, for example, is it possible that a believer would be called a child of the devil? Is that even possible to think about? All right. Do believers sin? Well, okay, you say that. There are some that believe that we don't sin. So you have a lot of questions that come up within the framework of this book, and I think specifically in this section, it's important for us to kind of look through that. I have told you I'm going to give you the primary views, but I will tell you where I land the plane as I go through this. The first view is this section of 1 John, as well as the epistle itself, is written to lay down tests by which a person's spiritual position can be determined. In other words, 
Do they belong to the Lord or not? Are they genuinely born again or not? How many times have you heard over the last 15 to 20 years the phrase genuinely born again? It's out there. People talk about it all the time. I know of one person that knows whether or not you or I are genuinely born again. And that person is Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us in John chapter 5 that all judgment's been given to who? Jesus Christ. Um, in this particular section of if a person is practicing sin, this gives evidence that they are not genuinely born again. And you have some really good theologians that believe that that's the case. That no genuine believer will have a time in their life when they practice sin. Um, Warren Wearsby is one of those. He says, every Christian, he said, every Christian sins. Perhaps at times without knowing it, but no true Christian will deliberately and repeatedly defy God's word and disobey him. What do you think of that? Is that true? Not true? Have you ever thought about it? Have you thought about whether or not a believer can continue in sin for a period of time. And another question to consider, how do you define that word practice in terms of how long? Is it five hours? Is it five days? Five weeks? Five months? Five years? What are we talking about? Very difficult when you truly and honestly think about it. So the first view has to do with the condition um, of a person. The second view is that this epistle is written to primarily address the issue of a believer's fellowship with God. Now, as I've told you, that's where I land. The big overall picture is fellowship with God, and it is a subject that I believe has been ignored, um, not necessarily on purpose, but something that has not been discussed enough in Christianity. Now, we often talk with other people, if we're born again, we often are concerned about a person's salvation, whether they belong to the Lord Jesus or not, right? And we have missionaries that go all over the world that are concerned if a person comes to Christ. They're concerned about that. But how often do you hear discussion around the issue of fellowship with God? I've been a believer for 51 years and I'm not sure I've ever heard too many discussions around the fellowship that a believer is to have with the Lord. Oftentimes it's put as your walk with the Lord, which is fine. But this issue of fellowship is really important because it gives you the idea of intimacy. It's being close with the Lord. It's abiding in Him, which John uses that phrase over and over and over and over again. And as I have said from the pulpit on numerous occasions, a person is never told to abide in him for salvation. Can we agree on that? That's not what we're told. We're told to believe in him. This view also says when a believer, uh, when, and when believers sin, fellowship with God is interrupted until there is confession of sin. And where do we see that? Chapter 1, right? He talks about that. That all of us sin. 
And that when we sin, it's important as believers, as we are walking and living the Christian life, it's important that when we sin, that we confess that sin. And as John wrote, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This view would suggest that the KJV and the NKJV more accurately translate the word poieo, which is the word practice. Now, you might look at that and think, well, now, why do we have to have a Greek, language, uh, Greek lesson? And we do. You have to. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. And I, I spent all week long and last week and the week before wasting my time. And I'm not wasting my time. This is very, very critical for us to consider. And you're going to walk away. You might already have a viewpoint. You might already think, hey, this is about relationship and not fellowship. Right? This is about position and not condition. That might very well be the case. Okay, but I would encourage you that we would look beyond the study notes in our Bibles and that we would consider what the scriptures tell us as we look at some of these words that are critical to define when considering what the nature of John's discussion is. Um, J. Dwight Pentecost, who holds the fellowship view, said this, in this section, John is making a distinction between the old nature and the new nature. That's what I believe John is doing. That's what I believe John is doing. And it's interesting when we go to an example uh, in another passage in the New Testament, there is another who is an apostle who makes a distinction between the old and the new. And that's very, very important for us to understand. Pentecost says John is not saying that one who is born of God does not sin or does not at times continue in sin. Can you think of anyone in the Bible, by way of example, that not only sinned but continued in sin? There are examples of that. John is saying that sin in the life of a believer can be traced to the old fallen nature. Now, there are some that hold to the fact that when one is born again, the old nature has been eradicated or done away with. Well, um, I don't know about you, I don't know how your days go. I know I'm born again, and I know Christ dwells in me, his seed, but I just know this, at the end of the day, I sin. I get up, and I don't think, well, you know what? Um, I'm never going to sin again, because I've been born again. I sin, and I don't know about your life, but I continue to sin. I do. You say, oh, Dad, you have a pattern of sin. Well, I, 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 I probably have sinned today. And, and I'm probably going to sin tomorrow. And you're like, oh, what are you going to do? Well, hey, look, there's a lot of things that are sin. Pride is sin. Yes, pride is sin, right? Gossip is what? Sin. I mean, do we even need to mention any others? There's sin that easily, right, gets into our lives on a daily basis. So, if you're just looking at the verses that are given to us here in 1 John chapter 3, and you begin in verse 4 and you go through verse 10, hey, the problem is sin. Do you have to teach your children to sin? We had three boys. I never had to say, hey, son, let me teach you how to sin. All three of my sons... um, Proved their Adamic nature, they sinned. 
And as far as I know, they continue to sin. But aren't we glad, and he gets to the good part in verse 5, but aren't we glad that we had, when we had no hope, we had one who came to earth and gave us hope, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he paid the penalty for our sin. Well, I'm certainly thankful for that. All right, here's the problem. The problem is sin. Notice what it says, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's the way it reads in the NAS. Well, this is the way it reads in the KJV. It's committeth. I didn't put up the KJV. I'm like, committeth and all that. My computer didn't hardly even recognize that. Um, But in the New King James, it's whoever commits sin. Oh. Was that accurate to the word poeo? Answer in short, yes. Can it be translated practice? Yes. You're like, oh no, we got confusion. Maybe. So in the New King James, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And we will get to that definition. For me, in looking at it and defining it, whether it's translated commit or sin in that verse, it's not a problem. Really, it. Um, I don't think it's translated practice. I lean toward it being translated to, to do, but we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. All right, so the problem is sin. Well, what does the word sin mean? The word sin, by definition, means to do what? To miss the mark, okay? It conveys the idea of missing the mark as when hunting with a bow and an arrow. That's the picture that we have. Missing the mark is described as a failure to live up to the righteous, or excuse me, the rigorous standard of God's holy law. Now, one of the things that we want to eliminate is that we're not um, accountable to the moral law of God. You know, a lot of times people, when they think about the law of God, they think about the Old Testament, they think about the 613 commands that God gave to Israel, and they're like, hey, we don't, we don't have to keep any of that. Well, the Bible talks about moral law, okay? So when you look at the Ten Commandments, that's moral law. It's law that God gave to Israel. And a lot of that obviously applies to us. And we know if we just took the example, God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, when Jesus comes, what does he say? I tell you this, if you've looked on a woman to lust after her, you've done what? Committed adultery, you're guilty. So the law does what? It shows that man is guilty. Man's guilty. Okay? So then you take the word lawlessness, because at the end of the verse he says sin is lawlessness. The word lawlessness is a different term. It's anonema or anomia. It describes that which is wicked or wickedness. It, it literally means wickedness. It also refers to a willful rejection of the law. Okay, question. Do believers willfully reject the law of God at times in their lives? Answer, yes. Wayne Barber, in in defining lawlessness on a practical level, described it this way. Lawlessness is living as though your thoughts are better than God's. Happened to you? Ever happened to you? 
Has it happened to you for more than one or two days? Has it happened to you for a period of time? Those are questions to consider. Um, like, for example, the Bible tells us that we are to be givers. True or false? Well, God, I got a better idea. I'm going to do with what you've given me what I want to do. Because, see, God, there's a season in life that I'm living in, and it's really difficult. And you might not even be aware of that. But I'm having a difficult time. Well, God's aware of all of it. And he owns what? All of it. So there's this issue of giving, which I love in the New Testament. Paul talks about it as grace giving, just as God has purposed in your heart. So we are free to give. Some people... um, Take the 10%, and I say the 10% is a baseline. That's my viewpoint, that you can take that as a baseline. But the responsibility in the New Testament is just to give as God gives to you, as, as, he, as he has purposed for you to give. That's how you give. But if I come along and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, and, and you, you, you hear a lesson on the importance of, of giving as a believer, and your conclusion is, after praying about it and thinking about it for a while, you're like, yeah, I'm going to give, but I don't know if I'm really all into this give as the Lord has purposed in your heart. Does that ever happen? I think it does. I've counseled way too many people who've struggled with that. Wayne Barber says, lawlessness is living in rebellion against God. Man live in rebellion against God at times? Christian people? I think so. It's happened. Lawlessness also, he says, is living with a mind to serve self. Do we even really need to talk about that one? Let me give you an example of a man who was a lawless man at a time in his life that um, you might not even think of this man as being lawless. But I want you to take your Bibles and go back with me to 2 Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel in chapter 12. When this particular man comes to your mind, you might be thinking of him as a shepherd boy or him standing in a field against Goliath. And, or you might be thinking of, hey, he wrote a lot of what I read in the Psalms. But did you know that David had a time of lawlessness in his life? A time of. That theologians would agree that when Nathan comes to David, it had at least been eight months to a period of about a year and a half to two years before Nathan the prophet comes to David. We know what's happened with David, don't we? Um, we know that he was guilty of adultery. We know that he was guilty of murder. David? Hold on a second. Is that that same guy that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart? That same guy? Hmm. Well, look what's written about him. We'll begin, uh, let's begin down in, well, we'll back up to chapter 11. It'll be all right. Chapter 11, look at verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that 
Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. For the thing that David had done was what? Evil. In the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except the little lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wafer who had come. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for him who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who, was, who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Look at verse 7. Then said, excuse me, Nathan said then to David, you are the man. You're the man, David. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been, been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Verse 9. This is some pretty strong language. Why have you despised the word of the Lord... By doing evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Notice the language in verse 9. He says to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Hold on a second. Are we talking about David? We are. And do you know what the word despised in the Hebrew means? To have a disdain or to hold something in contempt. It also means to treat someone or something as insignificant or worthless. Hold on a second, Thad. You mean David? David despised the word of the Lord. In other words, he despised the commands. Yes, he did. That's what the Bible tells us. If we just read the language, David, it says, despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. Oh, okay, well, that's not good, but, you know, does it get worse? Well, look at verse 10. Look what verse 10 says. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. In other words, hey, David... There's going to be pain and suffering and bloodshed in your life. There's going to be death in your life. That's what he's telling him. He says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Why? Because you have what? 
What is the next two words? You have despised who? Me. Now remember what I just told you that definition meant. David despised not only the word of the Lord, but the Lord. You read that and you think, how in the world can that happen? It can happen and it does happen. It's what, sin's ugly. And David was in rebellion against not only the commands of God, but against God himself. One theologian said not only did he sin against the commands of God, the word of God, but he sinned against his person. He sinned against God himself. In fact, did you know there's several theologians that would say that David broke all of the commandments in one shape or form, all of the ten. So I had to print off the article just to, so I could read it to you. Now there's some, you know, other thoughts on it. Some believe he only broke about four of them, four out of ten, <laughs> better percentage. But many theologians believe there's something to say about all of them. Listen to this. One theologian wrote, in reality, David broke all the Ten Commandments when he sinned. So he asked the question, how had he broken them all? And he answers the question. First command, no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. David allowed his lust to be the God to which he bowed in obedience. True or false? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. David took the holy name of God in vain as he said he was God's man and lived like the devil. Did he live like the devil? Answer, he did. You shall not make a graven image. David engraved the image of Bathsheba as she bathed. He lusted. He forgot that even the God he loved, he forgot even the God he loved for the sin of that moment. Does that happen, people? Does this one I thought was interesting because I was like, okay, what are they going to do with the Sabbath thing? Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy or separate. David didn't keep the Sabbath or any other day holy for God. Uh, for one, excuse me, David didn't keep the Sabbath or any other day holy for God. Once he had allowed the lust to rule in his life, pretty good statement. Honor your father and mother. David dishonored them and all his family as he sank into such wickedness and premeditated sin. Premeditated sin? Yeah, premeditated sin. And once he sinned with Bathsheba, he was in trouble with Uriah. So he had to get rid of him. What happens when we start down that road of sin? Why would we sin? And if we're not confessing it, like we should as believers, we continue to sin. And before you know it, man, we are spiraling so far down and we have lied about so much and been deceptive about so much. What must it have been like for Nathan to point the finger at David and for David to realize, yeah, it's me. Thou shalt not kill. David sent the murder request to Joab so it was not his sword but the arrows of others that David used. But it was his desire that Uriah be eliminated. You shall not commit adultery. <laughs> That's maybe the clearest of all of them, right? 
You shall not steal. David stole the wife of his neighbor and trusted friend Uriah and trusted friend Uriah as Nathan clearly pointed out in the story of the lamb. You shall not lie. David's false response was a lie when the messenger came with the news of Uriah's death. And even more, every day David lived in sin was a lie that he deceptively covered up. You shall not covet. David broke this law as he so coveted his neighbor's wife that he would steal her and kill her husband to share in sexual sin with her. Well, does man break God's law? Yeah. Do believers? I think they do. Well, so the problem is sin. All right? I don't think we have to look too far to see that problem. The tension in the text comes around back in 1 John. The tension in the text comes around one word in verse 4. All right, the tension and what makes us uncomfortable in discussing this uh, is the word practice. It's the word poeo. It means to do. It means to commit. And that's how the King James and New King James translate that. It means to perform. And it also is translated as practice. The Greek word poeo can describe a series of repeated acts. Well, what I can see, just using my life as an example, I sin. And I continue to sin. And I would say that I'll continue to sin until the Lord comes for me. Or I'm translated into his presence. Well, question that surrounds the tension um, that's the difference I showed you uh, earlier the word practices and the word commits those are two different words obviously translated but poeo can mean commit and to do which I believe it's to do in this particular text um, the question is and where the tension really is is can a believer practice sin Man, that is a huge question. Um, what's your answer? Not out loud, but what's your answer? Can a believer practice sin? Can it happen that a believer is in sin for a period of time? Remember, I don't know, I don't know who um, puts a time parameter around that. I don't know how you'd do that. I don't know. I don't know who's got the book on that. But I know this, that when I read the book of Romans, there's a problem that comes up that we're going to have to address. Um, and this is not just um, conversation for a bunch of people around the coffee pot talking theology. This is really, really critical that we come to grips with the fact uh, or the question, can a believer practice sin? Because if he can't, I'm not sure what you do with Romans 7. I'm just, I, I mean, that's just my viewpoint. I don't know what you do. Earlier I said, and this is important to say, if I'm going through the book of Romans, the first three chapters talk about the condition of man. And at the conclusion, it's what? All have sinned. Chapter 4 talks about, Paul talks about how one is justified. How is one justified? How is a man justified? How was Paul justified? How are you justified? The word justified means to be made righteous. 
How are you made righteous before a holy God? Faith. Okay? A man is justified by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing else. And so the picture is that at salvation, a person is dressed with the righteousness of Christ. And so what makes that person acceptable to God is who? Christ and his righteousness. So Paul says, hey, I've been justified by faith in chapter 4. In chapter 5, what does he say? Now that I've been justified by faith, the Bible tells me in chapter 5 that what? I have peace with God. It's the ministry of reconciliation. I have peace with God. All right? That's what he says in chapter 5. Well, then he comes to chapter 6, and he begins to talk about uh, what I would term sanctification. Okay? He talks about the life of sanctification. And he says in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? I think Paul's saying, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Oh, no, 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 no. We shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't. But then he says in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So is it possible that sin could reign in your mortal body? Appears so, otherwise he wouldn't have posed that statement that you would, he says, obey its lust. Well, then you come to chapter 7 and he begins to talk about the natures, all right? The nature of man and the conflict between the two natures. Because there is conflict between the old man and the new man. So once you're saved, is the, is the old man been eradicated or done away with? That's something you have to consider. It's a question that's very important. I say no. And obviously, Paul didn't think so either. In fact, if you skip down, just listen to these words. In uh, Romans 7, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. He's struggling. What in the world's going on? For I am not practicing, uh-oh, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. Oh, well, what would he like to do? Well, that's the statement of the new man, right, that he didn't have before Christ. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Well, I'm doing the very thing I hate, old man. But he says, I hate it, new man. Listen to this. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So this old man has not been eradicated. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now look at this. This is verse 19. Here it is. For the good that I want, new nature. Okay? Born again. This is the born again talking. For the good that I want, new nature, I do not do old nature. Don't do it. But I practice the very evil 
old nature. Paul, hold on a second, Thad. Paul, practicing sin? Does he see this wrestling match going on in his own life? Apparently so. Because he says, I practice the very evil that I do not want. And so he doesn't want it, meaning new nature. You say, well, is the same word that is used here, it used in 1 John? Nope. You say, okay, well, then your argument's done. Nope. It's the word prasso, and it means doing something as a regular practice. And it's to be distinguished from poieo, which means to do, according to Vine. So poieo is used in 1 John. Prasso is used in Romans, which seems to be a pretty big deal. Because what is Paul saying here? That I'm practicing the thing that I don't want to do. Have you ever had that in your life? Where you're in sin, but you're like, I don't want to be here. Or you're practicing something over and over and over again, and this is how that works out. He says, I'm practicing the very evil, evil that I don't want to do. Have you had a sin in your life like this? You wake up and you're going through your day and you're walking with the Lord and then there's a temptation and you give into it, whatever it is, and you confess it and the next day it's the same thing and the next day it's the same thing and the next day it's the same thing. And have you ever come to the point where you're like, hey Lord, I know you got to be tired of hearing this. I'm confessing this for the sixth hundredth time this year. That ever happened? Well, it's happened to me. You know what's going on to me? It's this new man and it's this old man. And there's this battle. There's this conflict. You say, well, how bad is the conflict? You know what Paul's conclusion is? Wretched man that I am. Hold on a second. Hey, you're the Apostle Paul. I mean, you're the man of not only the year, but, but you're the man of the decade. And he said, no. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this, what? Death. I imagine that when Paul penned those words... Um, I don't know how all that worked, but when you get to verse 25, he had to be leaping for joy. Because when you go through the argument and, 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 and this evil that he even says is present in him, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Yep. And on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Do you see that? That conflict that exists? I think if my viewpoint was that as a, one of the tests of me being a believer is that I didn't practice sin. Man, I'd be, I might be sitting on the edge of my bed wondering if I was going to get to heaven or not. 
we have to make sure that we understand that justification is a moment in time. You are justified when you believe, right? Sanctification is the rest of your life up until the point where you are transferred to his presence. Well, I know this is kind of heavy stuff and I'm trying to give it to you so you can at least think through it. The question you have to ask yourself as you think through your own study time is, can believers practice sin? Is that something they can do? I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm just saying, is it something that is possible? Well, what's the conclusion in 1 John chapter uh, 3, verse 4? Here's the conclusion. Sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. And Christians rebel. They do rebel. There's a story of a young man who was in rebellion. Listen to this. This young man was a son of a missionary to Africa. He didn't, like his father, want to go through the trials and the tribulations of being a missionary. And so he rebelled. He bought himself a motorcycle and he started riding motorcycles. I'm not saying that those who rebel ride motorcycles. That's not the point of the story. If I didn't think I would get hurt, I'd buy me a motorcycle. I know what you're thinking, Thad, don't buy you a motorcycle. I'm not going to. But he got into racing motorcycles. And his mother, all she could do is remember praying and weeping for her son. That's what happens, by the way, young people, when your Christian mom and dad are watching you rebel. They weep and they pray. He was injured in a motorcycle accident and he was given two weeks to live. He refused even to see the pastors who wanted to visit him. Now, he had already made a profession of faith, but he, was, he didn't want to be like his mom and dad. He wanted to carve his own trail. Well, three months later, his dad sent him a letter. And this is what his dad told him. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Stephen's response was, Lord, if you heal my body, I will serve you anywhere, anytime, and at any cost. The man's name, Stephen Olford. Any of you remember Stephen Olford? I'll leave you with this quote. I think it's a really good one. I don't know that I put it on here. I didn't. <laughs> but John Stott wrote this, and I thought it would be good for us to think through as we left today. The first step towards holy living is a recognition that sin and lawlessness is utter rebellion against God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about the questions that are presented to us in this section of Scripture, um, I recognize that the Christian world, the evangelical world, is kind of 
uh, divided on um, their interpretation and um, you know that's that just happens um, I don't know that this is a primary issue it's it's one that's discussed um, I think when we read it we all understand that we sin we all understand that at salvation uh, we trusted in the Lord Jesus uh, the one who paid the penalty for our sin and it's really the issue of the power of sin in our lives, Lord, that, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And so I pray that, that you would help us by your spirit to live for you and that we would walk with you and that as we face the temptations um, and this old man still being present in us, I pray that we would just remember the importance of abiding in you of staying um, close to you, of living in you, just like you told your disciples in John 15, that they were to abide in you. And so I just pray you would help us by your spirit to do those things. And uh, I pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Sing with me. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to as I am and waiting not to Amen. Mm-hmm. 
mercy and grace, my freedom born, and now to glory in your cross, O Lamb of God, I come. I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued, I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms, praise God, just as I am. I come broken to be mended, I come empty to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb, and I'm welcomed with open arms, praise God, just as I am, praise God. Just as I am. Linda and Sharon, thank y'all. I want to make just a few announcements before we leave uh, today. First one is uh, we will be having a visitor's luncheon on the 22nd, immediately following uh, the service, which is next Sunday morning. So if you're interested in that, you can um, see Amanda at the visitor's uh, center uh, to sign up today. She'll be back there, and uh, you can just let her know about that. Give you an opportunity to know a little bit more about the church than just on a Sunday morning. Also, um, we will have a church-wide fellowship on the 29th which will be two weeks uh, from today. There, several have already signed up, so make sure you sign up for that. It's an opportunity for you to get to fellowship with the body of Christ here. And then also on that same day, on the 29th, we will have baptism that morning. And so if you want to be baptized, um, hopefully my finger will be healed by then, and I'll be able to put you down and take you back up. Um, hopefully, might have to have somebody to help me take you back up, but um, we'll get you down, and um, I'm just looking forward to that, and uh, if you're interested in being baptized, just see me, uh, call the church office and make an appointment, I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you about that. One last practical piece of advice before you leave today, don't ever take a mason jar and um, knock it on the counter, uh, I was getting some ice cream. Teresa and I were watching a movie Tuesday night and Blue Bell ice cream is wonderful. 
and uh, I believe it's ice cream we're going to eat in heaven. But Bluebell homemade vanilla, and I had it, and um, Teresa, we, we just kind of made eye contact, ice cream. So we got the ice cream, I go up to the cabinet, and there's some candy corns in a mason jar. And so I grabbed those, uh, the mason jar, and uh, the candy corn, as you know, with the sugar, it gets stuck. And so I tapped on it to kind of see if it'd come loose, and it didn't. So I was like, bam! And it came loose, and uh, the, uh, had to go to a medical center that night and get five stitches. And I won't tell you what Teresa said to me. If you want to know that, you can see her. It was dumb, though. That's for sure. All right, guys. Hey, two things. If you're saved, you're aware of the fact we sin. That's all the more reason we need to abide in the Lord. And then if you're not saved, if you think, hey, I'm pretty all right, I'm hoping to get to heaven one day, um, just being pretty all right is not the answer. Uh, Christ came and he died for your sins. The Bible says that he stretched out his arms in love and he died for you. He shed his blood so that if you trust in him as your savior from sin, that he will save you. And you'll be placed in him forever. And I'd love to talk to any of you that might be questioning that today. Or if you're just struggling with your own salvation. Please come up and see me. I'd love to sit down and talk with you. All right? Well, you are dismissed. Hope you have a wonderful day.